You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, this is Dr. Del Rosso, and it's a pleasure to bring you another episode of Derms and Conditions. And I have with me today Dr. Matt Cyrus, who is Associate Professor of Dermatology at Ohio University, which is my old alma mater. And he's also uh, the director of the Ohio Contact Dermatitis Center in Columbus, Ohio. So welcome, Matt. It's a, it's great to have you here. And as you know, I have always have a lot of questions and call you all the time. So uh, we're going to go through some of the things that I like to hear you you talk about. So welcome. It's great to have you here. Great to be here. Always uh, fun to talk to you, Jim. Well, thank you very much. I wish everybody felt that way, but at least I have a couple of friends. So one of the things that I remember talking to you about one time was we have different types of gloves at our disposal, latex gloves, nitrile gloves, vinyl gloves, cotton gloves. And and in what situations do you actually recommend use of these gloves to patients, maybe based on what they're presenting with or their occupation? And what do they actually protect against. So you can you go through and tell me where I may want to recommend specific types of gloves? Yeah, absolutely. So, but, you know, by far the most common uh, use of gloves is, is just people who are, are being exposed to common routine things. So cleaning products, dish soap, things that are, that are not chemicals that are quote unquote out there. And in that setting, it really becomes looking for the glove that is going to be most comfortable and be least likely to cause problems of its own. Now, the the challenge with gloves is always that, in essence, the nicer the glove feels, the more problems there usually are with it. So the most comfortable glove and the best protective glove in a medical perspective is, is a latex glove. Now, latex gloves, though... And whenever you stop and think about it, that makes sense, right? What are most condoms made out of? They're made out of latex, right? And why? Why? Because latex is comfortable. You don't. You, you almost don't know that you're wearing it. Uh, and so, you know, latex gloves are traditionally what surgeons wore, and they were traditionally what most uh, medical providers wore. But then, back in the '80s, we had this huge problem with latex allergy, and that remains a big source of confusion for lots of medical providers and patients, right? So. Latex allergy is essentially non-existent now. So latex allergy was actually allergy to residual protein that was left in the glove uh, that was made from natural rubber latex. So the proteins from the Herba brasiliensis tree, which is the latex tree where they would come from, you'd be hard pressed to find any latex protein in them anymore. So one of the first things is is people all you know ask me all the time, am I allergic to latex? You know, after I patch tested them, and oh, you're allergic to gloves. Am I allergic to latex? No, you're not allergic to latex. And the other part of that problem is people often think, well, if I'm wearing non-latex gloves, those are safe from an allergy perspective. And really nothing could be further from the truth. So latex got generally replaced with nitrile. Nitrile there's you know no risk of latex allergy with it, but the real problem with rubber gloves are the the accelerators, right? And the accelerators, what those are, what the term accelerate refers to, is a, a rubber glove starts as a liquid, and then it has to polymerize into a, a film. When you say rubber gloves, are you referring to latex gloves or nitrile gloves? What 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 are you specifically referring to? Yep, great, great, yes, uh, both. <laughs> So uh, whether we're talking about uh, nitrile, latex, neoprene, 
which are the three main types of rubber gloves, right? So you've got rubber gloves and plastic gloves. The rubber gloves all fit much more comfortably and stretch better. Uh, and, and the rubber gloves need to have accelerators in them to accelerate the process of them going from uh, a liquid to a, a film. And latex, nitrile, neoprene all have accelerators in them. So the best gloves to recommend in general to medical providers. So again, let's say you're you're in the office, somebody comes in, they're a scrub nurse, they're a nurse, they're a surgeon, they're a physician, and they need to use gloves for doing procedures. Best gloves for, for doing uh, uh, procedures in the office that are gonna be low risk. My, my favorite glove is called uh, Ansel, so A-N-S-E-L-L is the manufacturer, Micro Touch. Uh, right, I don't need to, to spell that. So the word micro touch, and then Nitra N I T R A free. Uh, so Ansel Micro Touch Nitra free. These are a nitrile glove. So most of us in our offices, the the regular rubber gloves that we have in the office are nitrile gloves. Uh, these are nitrile gloves that don't have accelerators. And so you're not going to get allergic contact dermatitis from uh, those gloves as exam gloves. For surgeons uh, and for people who need to use, or scrub nurses, people who need to use uh, sterile gloves, my favorite glove there is also from Ansel, and it's called Gamex Latex-Free Sensitive. And that is a accelerator-free surgical glove uh, that is appropriate for your surgeons or your scrub nurses or anybody who needs to do sterile procedures. And those provide really, really good protection from, you know, all kinds of biological fluids. So first, that's class number one of gloves and the most common thing that comes up, rubber gloves and allergic contact dermatitis. The two gloves that you need to know, again, Ansel Microtouch Nature Free and then the Gamex Non-Latex Sensitive or, or Latex-Free okay. Sensitive. So that's for the health professionals. What about gloves we're recommending to patients that we want them to use when they're working with liquids, they're working in the garden, they're working with with chemicals, dish, dishwashing fluids, whatever. What do you recommend to patients to use? Yep. So for patients, I generally recommend vinyl gloves. So vinyl is plastic. So there are no rubber accelerators. There's no chance of allergic contact dermatitis. And for most of those types of things, so you're working in the garden, you're doing dishes, you're cleaning, whatever, you don't need fine manual dexterity. So the big thing with vinyl gloves and really all plastic gloves. So you, you get vinyl gloves, you get PVC gloves, uh, which is another type of vinyl you've got polyethylene gloves. Polyethylene is most similar to say saran wrap. Uh, so if you if you go into say Subway and you see the clear, real thin plastic, they almost look like little plastic baggies in the shape of a glove, that's a polyethylene glove. All plastic gloves have much less fine sensation manual dexterity, but they have very, very, very good chemical resistance. So generally better chemical resistance than do rubber gloves. Uh, and there's no rubber accelerators. So for Things like working in the garden, cleaning, doing dishes, vinyl gloves are your best bet. And typically, I, I, the, even better. Uh, so one of the real challenges with gloves is that your hands sweat whenever you're wearing gloves, and sweat is an irritant as well. And so we get a lot of people who say that, well, when I wear gloves, it makes my hands worse. The easiest way to get around that, they make gloves that are fabric-lined. So if you go on Amazon and you uh, search for cotton lined vinyl gloves 
you'll come up with cleaning gloves that have uh, cotton on the inside surface that absorbs some of the sweat, makes the gloves much more comfortable. And that really helps people who, you know, say, well, whenever I wear gloves, the sweat makes my hands worse. That's the easiest way to get around that. Used to tell people, you know, wear cotton, get a pair of cotton gloves, wear them under the rubber gloves. Much, much harder to do that. Much easier to use the the lined uh, vinyl gloves. Are those lined gloves reusable or are they disposed after each use? They're reusable. So they're similar to the old Playtex gloves, right? The yellow gloves that a lot of people use for years and years uh, whenever they're doing dishes, things like that. So they're reusable, totally fine for patients to reuse essentially indefinitely until they get a hole in them uh, or they tear or something like that. But they are reusable. They they tend to cost about 10 bucks a pair. Uh, so they're not dirt cheap, but they're not unreasonably expensive. And, and they last typically for months and months at a time. Okay, so all those times that a patient, when we're going to do it, when I'm going to do a procedure, I have a latex allergy and my nurses are scurrying around, oh, those are latex gloves. The patient, <laughs> there's no latex allergy that's even involved in that situation. No, it essentially doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so it's not something we need to be worried about. Well, that's very practical, and I could put that to use as soon as I get back to the office. Now, one of the situations that I see not that uncommonly, and I remember years back, you contributed an article with, I believe, one or two of your residents or fellows that you had at the time on patients that complain about irritation, itching. They may have some erythema, some eczematous dermatitis in the vault of their axilla, not on the edges that might be from a textile or whatever, but in the vault of the axilla. And it may be unilateral or bilateral, but they're looking for recommendations on what should I use as a deodorant or antiperspirant. And I remember it's been quite a while. You had some specific recommendations. I thought maybe you would update me on that. So I'm up to date. I'm as up to date as Matt Cyrus <laughs> Start, <laughs> starting tomorrow. <laughs> right, wait, there's one more thing that I want to talk about with gloves before we go on, though. Uh, and, and this is something that once you hear it, it makes such complete sense. Uh, but we it's something that until you, you, you hear it for the first time, it, it usually doesn't occur to people. We use gloves all the time to increase the efficacy of topical medications on the hands. Right. So put, you know, a topical steroid on wear gloves overnight. It, remembering that gloves have the same effect on irritants. So if somebody washes their hands and then puts gloves on right afterwards, you magnify the irritant effect of the soap by about tenfold. And so for your healthcare providers or anybody who's wearing gloves a lot, you really want to emphasize to them, uh, rinse your hands really well before you put the gloves on, because if there's any residual soap on your hands, the gloves are going to magnify the damage that that does to your skin by about tenfold. And so that, that becomes a really important thing to talk about with healthcare providers in particular. So thinking about that, if we're recommending to patients to be utilizing a certain barrier repair cream or, or moisturizer where they're, they're not exhibiting any kind of symptoms or visible dermatitis on their hands, is there a potential that now when they're putting the gloves on, you may actually be bringing out 10 times more something that's in those formulations that with the gloves on create the problem in eczematous yes. dermatitis, but it's actually the moisturizer component that's doing it, but it doesn't happen when it's open use without the gloves. So how do you determine that? You really have to just deal with that via patch testing. There isn't a good way to determine uh, other, you know, you could do trial and error kind of things, 
but it, it really becomes something that you just have to talk to patients about. And again, once you give them that idea that anything you put on, whether it's soap, moisturizer, or anything, and then put gloves on, the gloves will magnify both the beneficial effects and the detrimental effects of whatever you've used on your hands right before then. But all right, so now to, to go on to the, the deodorant question. So really a challenging situation to deal with in, a, in an efficient manner in the office, right? So somebody comes in and it's certainly more common with women probably related to shaving being a, a trigger of both irritant dermatitis and increasing penetration of, of anything else that goes on due to the low-grade irritancy from that. But the deodorants that I go to regularly. So Almay makes a fragrance-free gel that is kind of my standard recommendation. So as soon as somebody says, boy, my armpits are bothering me, they're they're itching, they're irritated, it, it stings whenever I put this on or whatever, Almay fragrance-free gel is my first go-to. And that's an antiperspirant and a deodorant. Uh, and right, so you, you always have to keep in mind that there are antiperspirants, right, which are almost always going to have aluminum in them. And then there are deodorants, which are not going to have aluminum in them, don't do anything to avoid sweat, to, to reduce sweating, but are, are just there to prevent odor. So most people want a an antiperspirant deodorant combination product. This All May Fragrance-Free Gel is my favorite. If somebody doesn't need a uh, an antiperspirant, probably my go-to product there is literally called Natural Crystal Stick. So it is an, it's alum. So it, it feels like just a mineral, uh, but it works pretty well as an antiperspirant, completely non-irritating and non-allergenic. And so, you know, with those two products, the All May Fragrance-Free Gel and the Natural Crystal Thick, most people, I, I, those are, you know, it just depends on if they're looking for an antiperspirant or for just a deodorant. The other products that I go to pretty regularly, and, you know, I know we're all very familiar with most of these. So Certain Dry, uh, which is a relatively high concentration aluminum chloride, no fragrance in it, but tends to be pretty irritating. The big thing with using that, people only need to use it once every three days. I have them put it on at night before they go to bed, and I'll usually have them use a low-potency topical steroid along with it. So once every three days, you're going to put the Certain Dry on at night, and then whenever you get up in the morning, you're going to put some Desonide cream on to help combat any irritancy that you might get from the Certain Dry, but that tends to work for a three-day period. Now, the you know you then start to get into some of the prescription products that are out there. I don't find that it's necessary to go to the prescription products very frequently for people with armpit dermatitis. Now, right, if you're dealing with hyperhidrosis, totally different topic, not not my area of expertise at all. But knowing those three antiperspirants, the All May Fragrance-Free Gel, the Natural Crystal Stick, and then Certain Dry for your people who, who really need aggressive uh, antiperspirant. But Remembering that with a certain dry, you put it on at night uh, and you only do it every three days. And, and I typically couple it with a low potency topical steroid. So thinking about, oh, my God, you're talking about utilizing a topical steroid in the axilla. You're only putting it on a couple of times, you know, the one time right, to, after they yeah. right. It's not every day. Right. So you're not yes. running into chronic corticosteroid use, even though it's low potency in the axilla. Yes, and 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 with those products, you're you're 
you've really taken, you know, allergic contact dermatitis off the table as a potential cause for their axillary dermatitis in that situation. And and that's one of the ways that I'm always thinking about contact dermatitis is from the perspective of, you know, I'm somebody who, you know, I patch test everybody to 90, 100, 130 allergens. So I, I you know, am able to tell am I dealing with contact dermatitis based on the results of the patch testing, but most people don't have that available to them. And so it, it really becomes, you know, you know that contact dermatitis is in your differential diagnosis, but you don't really know you know, do I need to send this person for patch testing? The closest person who does patch testing is an hour away and it's a three month wait to get in. And what am I going to do until then? And what it it really helps to be able to think about how concerned am I about with contact dermatitis? And and is there something I can do to really address it without having to go the route of patch testing? And it really comes down to thinking about the patterns of the, of the contact dermatitis, right? So you and I've talked about this before, and there are certain patterns that really direct you towards contact dermatitis. So starting with the hands, if it's purely your palms, so, you know, and and by palms, I'm talking also palmar aspects of the fingers. If it's purely your palms and your fingers, the palmar sides, really unlikely that that's going to be allergic contact dermatitis. If it's just the backs of your hands or interdigital, again, relatively unlikely that's going to be contact dermatitis. Uh, allergic contact dermatitis, much more likely it's going to be irritant, right? Now, when it's when it's just the palms, whenever I said a minute ago, it's very unlikely to be contact dermatitis. Well, what is it, right? It's endogenous, uh, dyshydrosis, chronic vesicular hand dermatitis, psoriasis, you know, palmar psoriasis, things like that. But you don't get contact derm very commonly that affects just the palms. Dorsal hand, interdigital, uh, without involvement of the palms, can be allergic contact derm, but is usually irritant. But if you see somebody who's got both palmar involvement and dorsal hand involvement, that's somebody who is really likely to be allergic contact dermatitis. And that, you know, gloves, soap, and moisturizer are your big three. And it's pretty easy to to deal with that, right? So if they're a healthcare provider or somebody who wears gloves, we talked about glove recommendations for that already. Soap, you know, the easiest thing to do, any of the products from Free and Clear Vanacream and CeraVe, everything from those two companies, very, very low allergenicity. There's no company that really widely available makes products that are completely non-allergenic, but those two companies are, do a very good job uh, for soaps and also for moisturizers. So if you see somebody, it's both palm and dorsal, uh, think gloves, soaps, and moisturizers, and gloves we talked about, moisturizers uh, and soaps, free and clear, Vanacream uh, and CeraVe are, are the easiest brands to, to go to. So Matt, I have a question. I, I've, heard, I've heard people say, and I've never read enough about it scientifically to know the basis for it, but if let's say somebody you know, has scalp itching, but not a lot of visible dermatitis, that the scalp, it's harder to elicit allergic contact dermatitis on the scalp. Is that true? Where if it's a shampoo or something, it's they're likely going to have a facial dermatitis more easily. Can you can you uh, shed some light on that? Yeah. So it, we finally got an answer to that question. So because we've known for years that the the scalp is relatively impervious to contact dermatitis. About the only thing that gives you contact dermatitis on the scalp is paraphenylene diamine. Uh, whenever you get your hair dyed, and actually that's the million dollar pearl from our conversation, Jim, is is this. Uh, so for anybody who comes in and says, when I get my hair dyed, my head gets itchy, and you immediately know they're allergic to paraphenylene diamine, but they want to keep getting their hair dyed. 
we now have an answer for what product to tell them. It's from a company called Wella, who's one of the major hair dye companies. Every salon in the world knows about Wella. Uh, so Wella, W-E-L-L-A, Colistin, K-O-L-E-S-T-O-N, perfect, with M-E. And the M-E stands for methoxymethylparaphenylenediamine. And so this is a, a hair dye where essentially you think about diamine and it fits into the, the binding site and triggers allergic contact dermatitis through the T-cell receptor. They put a little methoxymethyl group on the diamine, so now it doesn't fit. And so it works exactly like regular diamine, but it's 50 to 100 times less allergenic. And so for all of your women who come in who have allergic contact dermatitis to hair dye, that's the dye that they can go to. Works just like regular dye, same colors, same everything. Well, that's going to help me because this beautiful hair I have is dyed. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be as silver as a spoon, you know? And so I'm going to put that to use because my scalp itches like hell every time I get my hair dyed. So yes, that, so that's I, the, the product. The, uh, but, but so we, we never understood why the scalp was so resistant to contact dermatitis. Uh, and, and now we actually do. So there are regulatory T cells that live in a higher density around your hair follicles. And those are what protects the scalp from allergic contact dermatitis uh, compared to the, the, the rest of your, of your body. The increased density of hair follicles leads to this uh, reduction in sensitivity to allergic contact dermatitis. But then it, it gets to the, it becomes a really fascinating thing, right? That, that could patients and, and as a provider, unless you do a lot of patch testing, it's easy to assume this as well, that if you were allergic to shampoo or conditioner, you should have a rash on your scalp, but you don't, right? With shampoo and conditioner, uh, the two patterns that, that are by far the most common are, are both what we call rinse-off patterns. So one is lateral face, jawline, and, and lateral aspects of the neck. So whenever I see a, a rash that's most uh, bothersome in those areas, and it can be retroauricular, it can be preauricular, but sides of the face, jawline, sides of the neck, by far most likely to be shampoo and conditioner, and then eyelid dermatitis, uh, also most likely to be shampoo and conditioner. Now, with eyelid dermatitis, it does come down to a, there are a number of different eyelid dermatitis patterns that are very helpful once you kind of know what you're looking at and thinking about. So first, if it goes beyond the orbit, so you're the, the bony orbit right around your eyes, if it goes beyond that, it is most likely going to be allergic contact dermatitis. Now it doesn't have to go beyond that. Allergic contact dermatitis can be very localized to just the eyelids itself, but normally allergic contact dermatitis is going to involve the eyelids and beyond the orbit. If it is predominantly in the crease, so in your upper lid, we all have a, a crease where, you know, whenever your eyes are open and, you, and your eyelid folds back uh, on itself, there's a crease there. If it's most severe and relatively limited to that crease, then it's almost always irritant contact dermatitis. The big thing that, that I find helpful there is talking to patients about you've got to wash your face after you've rinsed out your shampoo and conditioner, and you've got to wash it with a low irritancy cleanser. So my favorite is certainly CeraVe hydrating cleanser, and, and it's got to be the hydrating, not the foaming. And talking to people about specifically wash your eyelids after you've rinsed out your shampoo and conditioner, use that product to do it, and then even then rinse very well afterwards. So making sure we're not leaving any irritants that can get trapped in that fold. So the old adage about 
your eyelids are so sensitive because the skin is so thin. Absolutely truth to that. But the second thing that's part of that is occlusion. So when your eyes are open, that crease is occluded. <clears throat> Excuse me. The third big category of eyelid dermatitis, uh, seborrheic eyelid dermatitis. And that is something that is so not in line with what I think of as regular seborrheic dermatitis that I, I almost think of it as a a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning if it's not allergic contact dermatitis and it's not irritant contact dermatitis, then I'm going to treat it as seborrheic dermatitis with azole antifungals and, uh, you know, a topical immunomodulator, pomecrolimus, uh, tacrolimus, maybe some of the new non-steroidals that will be coming out soon. But those are the three big patterns of eyelid dermatitis. So if it's beyond the orbit, you think allergic contact dermatitis and beyond the orbit could mean it's the eyelids and then it, it extends directly out you know, from that around the eyes, it could be eyelid dermatitis and patchy on the rest of the face, but it's not just your eyelid, right? If it's just your eyelid, then I'm more thinking irritant contact dermatitis and, and seborrheic dermatitis. So, the, the, and then the third pattern that's kind of useful to think about on the face uh, is a central face, right? So we talked about lateral face being more of a rinse off pattern from shampoo and conditioner, if it's central face, then you're much more thinking uh, moisturizer and makeup. So uh, in, in makeup, you're mainly thinking foundation. And, and you think central face there because whenever, if, whenever they've done studies looking at how much product do people apply, you apply much more to your central face than you do to your lateral face. And so moisturizer and makeup are, are the two things that people are applying. Certainly sunscreen is another possibility. But with those... You also have to think about gold. So for anybody out there who's doing any patch testing at all, whether it's with the true test or with more extended patch testing, gold is a, is a common allergen. So about 10% of women are going to test positive to gold. 90, 95% of people, it's completely irrelevant. You don't need to tell them to avoid gold. The only time that gold it really turns out to be relevant in my experience is with facial dermatitis. And it's because titanium dioxide that is present in almost all makeup uh, and is present in, in many, many sunscreens as well, it interacts with, an, and essentially you can think of it as it activates gold as an allergen. And so if you're wearing a gold ring and you're wearing uh, makeup or sunscreen that has titanium dioxide, the titanium dioxide activates the gold and you be, it behaves as if you're allergic to the titanium dioxide. You're not, you're allergic to the gold, but the gold and the titanium dioxide interact to create the the allergic contact dermatitis. But how how is the gold interacting on the face? Like when people rub their the, the have a gold ring, for example, right? Yes. And and it could be any quality of gold. You tell them this, and they go, "Well, I buy high quality gold. I got twenty four carat, whatever. Yep. Doesn't matter, correct? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And it's and it really and, and I generally don't see problems for if even if they're having that problem, as long as they get rid of the gold rings, because it is it's it's the touching your your face, you know, gets the the titanium dioxide containing product to the ring, and then whenever you touch your face again, it's transferred back. And the the other thing about gold allergy is it's very persistent. So whenever you get a positive patch test to gold. They might have that positive patch test reaction for three to six months on their back. Whenever you've got a, a allergic contact dermatitis on your face from gold, it may take three to six months to resolve after wow. you stop wearing the gold. And so I give women the choice. You can either stop, you can either get rid of your gold jewelry, replace it with platinum, which is the one that they tend to, to pursue, 
or they can stop wearing makeup. And, uh, you know, certainly the, the changing your gold for platinum is much more popular than discontinuing your makeup. And then you have a husband or a boyfriend standing by your car out in the parking lot. This isn't platinum <laughs> a lot more expensive? The boyfriend or the husband is usually very happy whenever I say, oh, you're allergic to gold. You can't wear gold anymore. Oh, no, that's terrible. Yeah, so you need to replace it all with platinum. Oh, my. No, that is terrible. This is, this is awesome. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I could tell you, Matt, I can talk to you forever, but I know we have to call it a day because I think you have a patient waiting for patch testing in room four, probably. <laughs> that's, exactly, so, that's exactly right. So I want to thank you for joining us, and I want to thank all of our listeners for participating today. We hope we gave you some practical information and certainly some great tips, clinical tips uh, that can help you even when you're not doing patch testing to evaluate your patients. If you missed any prior episodes, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Search Derms and Conditions and follow us. Also, if you have any questions or comments or just want to tell us anything that you feel about uh, these podcast episodes, please go to podcasts at fred.health and we'll be sure to uh, look at what you write and hopefully integrate some thoughts into some future programs. Thank you very much.